Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great power that you have shown to us in so many ways. And we thank you for the way that we see your power in your word. In it we see that there are no contradictions. We see that it has been preserved over the centuries so that we have it today. Lord, it is a miracle that we have your word before us, particularly as we consider who you are, that you are the great God and we are simply creatures and sinful creatures at that. And we do not deserve to hear your voice, but you in your power speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that we may have ears to listen this morning as you speak. And may we be encouraged, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to continue following faithfully after him. We pray that if there are any people here this morning that are non-Christians, we pray that you may open their ears to the gospel message this morning and that they may understand that your word is indeed powerful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had the experience of joy turning to fear? Of joy turning to fear, being joyful about something and then having that joy wiped away and become fear instead. This happens every time I go to mow the lawn. My son Joshua thinks the lawnmower is the most fascinating thing, I think, in the house. He's so excited when I even pick up the keys to go and unlock the shed and get the lawnmower out. And he is so excited by it. But then he will help me, you know, put fuel in the tank. He'll be there watching. He'll help me press the red button to push some fuel through. But then as soon as I lift the lever and to put my hand on the cord to pull the starter cord, he gets really afraid and runs back toward the house, runs inside and trembles there, but still looks out the screen door as I mow the lawn. And then if my daughter is there as well, he'll put his hand on her and say, it's okay, it's okay. And if my wife Jill is there as well, she will, he will say to her, it's okay, it's okay, as though he's the calming influence and everybody else is afraid and he is the only one that was without fear when clearly his actions speak otherwise. He has great joy in this lawnmower, but then the lawnmower turns into this great object of fear. And that can happen with us. We can be very joyful at one moment and then the next moment we are most fearful. The situation changes not simply the pulling of a starter cord on a lawnmower, but for some other reason, the situation that we are in changes and we go from being joyful to being afraid. And that's what we're going to look at this morning with these disciples, the disciples of Jesus. They have experienced great joy with Jesus. They've been living with Jesus for three years. They've known him. They've seen great miracles that he has done. And then they Eventually, at the, toward the end of those three years, they come to Jerusalem and they see Jesus welcomed into Jerusalem. And it is with great joy that people welcome him. They are saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. They're very excited. They get palm trees, which is the equivalent of balloons today, I guess, um, palm leaves. They bring these palm leaves, shake them around. They're very joyful about the fact that the one that they believe is the Messiah, the one who would save them, is there in Jerusalem, coming into Jerusalem to the city of God. But then that joy that they have turns to fear. It doesn't stay joy. And why is that? Well, of course, their Messiah, Jesus, their friend, 
their teacher, their rabbi. He is crucified. He's arrested and he's taken and hung between two thieves and dies a horrible death. And so it's not surprising that we see that the disciples go from being people of joy to something else. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is look at their first state after the, after the crucifixion of Jesus and then something happens to change their state again, back to joy. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so we're going to look at John chapter 20. If you've got a church Bible, it's page 1075. I encourage you to have it open. And we're going to look at just two verses from John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20, page 1075. And we're going to be firstly looking at the initial state of the disciples. The initial state of the disciples. And that's my first main point this morning. If you've got a church bulletin there, you can see on the back, I've got all my main points listed there so you can follow along. My first main point is the initial state of the disciples, and that is fearful. We see these disciples here in verse 20, and we see them in a state of fear. I should say verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me of John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Here we see the disciples, they're gathered together. They're there on the first day of the week, which of course is Sunday. And this is the Sunday, of course, two days after Jesus has been crucified. And they're all together there. Now, who are these disciples? Well, we know from further down that someone's missing. Who's that? Thomas. Thomas isn't there. And somebody else is missing. One of the 12 is missing. Who's that? Judas. Judas uh, is the disciple who betrayed Jesus, and he's no longer part of the 12 here. So we've definitely got at least 10 of these disciples, but we've got the 10 uh, and it could be that there's other disciples mentioned. When the word disciple is used, it's not always meaning just the 12. Uh, it can mean other disciples that Jesus had, other people who were following him. And, of course, one of those is um, elevated to uh, a higher status later on, Matthias in Acts. We see that happen. But uh, So we've got at least here these 10 disciples, maybe some others, here together. And what are they doing? Well, you expect that they'd be grieving They've lost their dear friend. And so they'd be upset. But they're not just grieving like you may grieve if someone dies that is close to you. They've also got another state. And what is that? What I've said before, it is fear. And we see that in verse 19. On the evening on the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. How do we know they're fearful? They've got the doors locked. So what are they afraid of? They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. Now, why would they be afraid of the Jews? I mean, they're Jews themselves. Why should they be afraid of the Jewish leaders? Well, it's because it's the Jewish leaders that just crucified their Lord, their teacher. And so when someone is arrested and publicly condemned as a rebel, what usually also follows they arrest all the people that were collaborating with that person, don't they? Hitler's henchmen don't go scot-free once they get Hitler. 
No, they make sure they round up all the SS. They round them all up and make sure they pay the penalty for being part of that rebellion. And so these disciples would logically be very afraid. Their teacher has been condemned as a rebel against the state and crucified. So what's going to happen next? Well, the axe is going to fall on their heads soon as well. And so they've got these doors locked and they're gathered together, probably gathered together to sort of cry on each other's shoulders, but also because as a group, maybe they won't get arrested as easily. And here we, they're probably fearful as well because of the time of day that it is. It's at night that they're here, on the evening of that first day. And of course, evening, nighttime always exacerbates our fears, doesn't it? We become more afraid at night, don't we? Even from a young age, Joshua, already my son, he loves to have a night light on. And he likes light so much that he even turns the bedroom door, uh, bedroom light on as well. And he's been doing it so often now that I've actually taken the light bulb out of his light in his room. And he thinks it's broken, but he has to suffice now with the light that comes from the night light in his bedroom all the time. It's because we're afraid of the dark. And it's not just a natural fear of the dark that they probably have here as well. What time of day was Jesus arrested? It was at night. If these guys are going to come, these religious leaders are going to come for them, it's probably going to be at light. Because remember, Jesus had a lot of support from the people. That's why they arrested Jesus at night, was because they were afraid that there might be a riot. And so if the Jews are going to come for these disciples, it's going to be at night time. And so here they are, quivering with fear. They're in a state of fear here. So that's the disciples. What about Jesus? What kind of state is he in? Well, you'd say he's in a dead state. He's dead. He's crucified. He's had a spear plunged into his side. He's been crucified. The Romans have declared him dead. And when Roman soldiers declare you dead, you are dead. What state is he in? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning, the final state of Jesus. He's alive and peaceful. And we see that in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Here are these disciples quivering with fear and then Jesus comes and stands among them. You might be thinking, how did he get in? They've got the doors locked. How did Jesus get into the room? Well, this is a bit of a thing that lots of people try and make uh, solutions to as to how he got in. Could have been that the doors magically opened for him, that Jesus doesn't have problems with locked doors just like some locksmiths don't have problems with locked doors. It always scares me how easily they can uh, undo a lock. But Jesus is even greater than the greatest locksmith. The doors might have just magically opened. It could have been that they opened the doors for him. That's a little bit more unlikely that he sort of knocked. It seems that he just suddenly appeared there, which means that maybe he passed through the walls with his resurrection body. Or maybe he teleported in. I've always liked the idea of teleporting. Um, and it looks like that might be a possibility with the resurrection body, that you can teleport around. And Jesus teleports into the room. 
But realistically, we don't really know. The resurrection body is a great mystery to us. We only have a little bit of data as to what our resurrection body will be like. And so how Jesus got into the room, I can't really tell you. I encourage you to become a Christian and ask Jesus in heaven would be the best way to find out. But what is the state of Jesus? We don't really know how he got into the room, but what is his state? Well, clearly he's alive and well. How do you know Jesus is alive and well according to this passage? Well, firstly, Jesus can speak. What is he saying? Peace be with you. He speaks. Dead people don't speak. If you go to a morgue, it's not a chatty place. There's not lots of people talking while they're lying there dead. Dead people don't speak. Jesus is clearly alive. He speaks here. How else do we know he's alive? And not a ghost. Maybe he's a ghost that speaks. Well... He shows his hands and his side. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And so he's clearly not a ghost. A ghost does not have hands and a side. You can't touch a ghost's hands. You can't touch a ghost's side. That's if you believe in ghosts, which is debatable as to what ghosts are actually. But he's clearly not a ghost here. And... Then you might say, oh, well, maybe it's not Jesus. Maybe it's somebody else. Well, why does he show them his hands and his side? It's to show his scars, to show that he is indeed Jesus, that it's not somebody else who's come into the room and claims to be Jesus and maybe looks very much like Jesus. No, He shows, he proves by his hands and his side that he is the one. Just like if you get confused with someone, but you know that they've got a scar in a particular place, and you check their body for that scar, and you go, yep, that's the person. That's the case with Jesus here. The disciples knew about his crucifixion. Some of them had seen him crucified. Some of them had seen, John himself had seen, the spear go into Jesus' side. And so by seeing these marks... They know it's not somebody else. It is Jesus himself, and he is alive and well. So what's the state of Jesus? He's alive. But that's not all my second main point. It's the final state of Jesus is alive and peaceful. Jesus is something else. He proclaims peace here. And he does that in verse 20. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, is this a big deal? Am I making too much out of the fact that he says, peace be with you here? Well, maybe. I mean, after all, this is a standard greeting that is used. He's saying shalom to his disciples here. He's saying peace to them. And just like we have standard greetings today uh, that become meaningless, uh, maybe it's become a bit meaningless, and so he's just saying hello Just like we say, how are you? And it doesn't really mean much. How many times do you say, how are you, and actually care about the person and their state? And how often when someone asks you, how are you, do you actually say, yeah, I'm actually feeling really crook, or, you know, oh, no, I'm feeling great, and you go through all the reasons why you're feeling so good. No, you often say, good, fine, I'm well, these kinds of things. Because that greeting of how are you is a bit meaningless. Is that the case here in this text? Is Jesus saying, peace be with you, and John's just recording everything Jesus says, and it was really just a meaningless throwaway line? No. I think he means, peace be with you. 
He means every word that he says there. And he actually says it again in verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. He's emphasizing that these disciples should have peace. He wants them to have peace. Now, why is this surprising? Why is Jesus making a big deal of peace here? Well, because it's very probable that Jesus would not be at peace with them. I mean, just think about what the disciples have been up to when they last saw Jesus. Did they stand in support of Jesus as his friend when he was arrested? No, they all scattered. And then the ones that followed, one of those was Peter. What did he do? He denied knowing Jesus three times. He had three opportunities to say, yes, I am that man's disciple. I am one of the, the, the rebels that you're arresting. But instead he denied his Lord. And so these disciples would actually possibly expect if Jesus came back, he wouldn't be too happy with them. They've deserted him in the past and he might have a bit of a rebuke to give them. And even now, what are they doing? Are they standing up for the cause of Jesus Christ? What are they doing? They're trembling behind locked doors. These are not bold apostles that we see later in Acts. These aren't people waging war on the kingdom of Satan. These are people that are quivering and deserve a good rebuke, you would think. But what does Jesus do? He comes and says, peace be with you. Which is a remarkable thing for him to say. Not just because you don't expect him to say it because of what they've done, but also because of who Jesus claimed to be. Who did Jesus claim to be? He claimed to be God. And who is God? One who is at war with sinners. When you sin, you are a rebel against God. And God is at war with you. And so if Jesus is God, he should not be a friend of sinners. But what does he say to these disciples who are sinners? Everybody's a sinner. What does he say to them? Peace be with you. So how can he say that? How can he be so ready to forgive? How can he, particularly as God, be ready to forgive all their sins and be at peace with them? Well, it's because of what he's done on Friday. What did he do on Friday? He took the sins of those disciples upon his shoulders. And so he is no longer at war with those disciples. He is at peace with them. He proclaims to them that they now have peace because of what he did on Friday. But do they actually have peace? Is it possible for them to have peace? I mean, I can say peace to you, but does that mean you actually have peace? How can Jesus make sure that we believe this claim that we have peace? Well, it's because of the fact that he died and is now back to life. Jesus shows by coming back to life and giving evidence that of his resurrection that what he says is indeed the truth. When he says your sins are forgiven, the fact of the resurrection means it must be so. When he says you have peace, the fact of the resurrection says it must be so because he is the one who has conquered death. And so he shows that he has great power, power over death. And if you're going to trust anyone, if they say that God has forgiven you and has peace with you, better be Jesus. Or 
someone who has come back to life. And I dare you to try and find someone who has come back to life and then comes along to you and says, peace be with you, peace between you and God. Only Jesus has the power to make that proclamation and give evidence that it is indeed true. And it's by his resurrection which we remember, particularly this Easter Sunday. So, what is the initial state of the disciples? Fear. What is the the final state of Jesus? He's alive and peaceful. That then brings me to my third main point. What is the final state of the disciples? What is the final state of them? My third main point this morning is the final state of the disciples is overjoyed. These disciples were previously fearful that they would die at the hands of the Romans or the Jewish leaders, but now what happens? Their fear turns to joy. And we see that in verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They had joy. And this is not surprising. They now have their friend back. Jesus is alive. And Jesus has not only just come back to life, he's proclaimed peace to them. He said there's nothing between you and I anymore. We have a clean slate. The sin is removed. We have peace between us. And so there's no reason to be glum. There's no reason to be be depressed for these disciples because Jesus clearly has power over death. And what were they fearful of before? They were fearful that they would die. They would die at the hands of these Romans. But clearly their teacher is no match for some Roman authorities. The Romans are no match for their teacher. He has power over death. And so, of course, would you be afraid if someone is your teacher and has power over death and someone that proclaims peace to you? No, because you can come back to life too. And so these disciples have no fear from the government. And, of course, they have no fear of death because now they know that they have peace with God. If they die, what might have happened before if they died in their sin? They'd be eternally punished for their sin. God takes sin very seriously. And they know that from the Old Testament. God is wrathful towards sinners. And one of the reasons we fear death is because of what might happen after death. But these disciples, now they know they can come back to life and they know that when they come back to life, they're not going to be punished for their sins, that God is no longer wrathful toward them. And so it's natural that we see this final state of them here, and that is overjoyed at what they've seen with Jesus' resurrection. So that's Jesus, that's the disciples. What about you? What final state are you in? And that brings me to my fourth main point this morning. Your final state. Is it fearful or is it overjoyed? Because your life starts in fear, just like these disciples started this passage in fear. You're fearful of death, just like these disciples were fearful of death. You see it from a very young age. My son Joshua, he already jumps at the sound of a loud noise. You know, we're walking through a car park, a car park, a car beeps, and he jumps two feet high and runs back to his parents. He's fearful of death. 
And as you get older, that fear of death continues to grow, particularly once you start to accumulate a bit of guilt about the way you've lived your life, about the sins that you've committed. And once you start to understand that your guilt will not go unpunished and you will be punished for eternity by a wrathful God. And so you start to fear death more and more. You become afraid that you will die one day and be judged. You're afraid of other people, just like these disciples were afraid of people that might speed up their death and their judgment before God. You become afraid of illnesses. You become germophobic, always wanting to get rid of germs in case you get sick and die. You become fearful of horrible terminal diseases like cancer, that you might have cancer and die because that means you'll come before your God who's going to judge you for your sin. Is that you? Do you acknowledge that you're in a state of fear? If that is you, and it should be because we all should fear our death and fear punishment from God, then Jesus comes to you this morning and says the same thing he said to his disciples 2,000 years ago. And what is that? Peace be with you. You can have peace with God this morning, just like those disciples had, and have peace with death. You can know that your sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ at the cross, that the punishment that you deserve was poured out upon him, and so you will not be punished for eternity in hell when you die. Instead, you go to be with Jesus for eternity in heaven and a paradise, a wonderful place. And so death is no longer a fear to you. It's simply a doorway by which you enter into paradise. And so fear is removed. But you have to accept that. It doesn't come automatically. You have to accept Jesus' offer of peace this morning to you. How do you accept it? Well, you repent of your sins. You say you're sorry for what you've done to God and you believe, you trust that God sent his son and that his son died for you on the cross. If you simply trust in him, trust that he died for you, that at the cross he bore your sins, you're a Christian. Simple as that. It's not a case of you've got to repent, believe and do some good works, got to attend church regularly, got to go to Bible study, got to read your Bible every day, got to pray a bit. Then you become a Christian. No, it's as simple as repent and believe that Jesus died for you. Jesus has done it all for you. Christianity is not a religion of do, as many religions are. You do this, you do that, then you'll be okay. Christianity is a religion of done. It's all done in Jesus. All your sins are paid for. All you have to do is repent and believe that Jesus has done it for you. And if you do that this morning, what happens? Well, you end up in the final state that the disciples were in. What's that? Overjoyed. It's natural. If you know that your sins have been paid for and that death has no concern for you, that cancer and any kind of nasty disease, guns, anything like that, it has no fear for you now. I mean, there's a little bit of you know, sadness for the people that you leave behind. But for you personally, to die tomorrow is a wonderful thing because you go to paradise. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
To die tomorrow is gain. And so what does that mean? You should be overjoyed. If you're a Christian, you should be in a state of joy. And if you're not overjoyed about what you believe, then you should wonder whether you are a Christian. Have you really understood what it means to be forgiven of your sins through Jesus Christ? Christians shouldn't be depressed, glum people. They should be people of joy. Yes, we're sad about certain things that come along. We do weep about the state of the world and what it's in. But underneath it all, there should be a deep-rooted joy in what we know has happened at the cross for us in Jesus Christ. And that death has no sting for us whatsoever anymore. That should be the characteristic of a Christian. And you see some Christians that are really like that. They're just overflowing with joy all the time. And you know that they've truly understood what it is to be saved. Is that you? Do you know the joy of having your sins forgiven? If you don't, how do you get a bit more joy into your life? Meditate more upon how sinful you are. Now that seems like the opposite. It seems like that would be the depressing way to go about getting joy, to think about how sinful you are. No, that's the way you start about the process. Think about how sinful you are. All the times that you've rebelled against God, all the times that you've broken his commandments, all the evil thoughts that you've had, think about those sins. And once you start to feel pretty depressed about it, consider that those sins have been removed by Jesus Christ. Your guilt has been removed, and it is truly removed because Jesus proves it's been removed by the resurrection. And then the joy just follows. It comes. If you really understand how sinful you are and what it is that Jesus has forgiven your sins, joy is irresistible for you to have. It just happens naturally. And if you claim to be a Christian, it should be the case that you are overjoyed. And if you're not, go back to the basics. Go back to considering how sinful you are and what it is to have Jesus forgive you for your sins. So are you afraid of death? Don't be. Are you depressed? Don't be. Believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead and has paid for your sins so that you have peace with God and therefore can have peace with everything. You've got peace with cancer, you've got peace with anybody that might attack you. Believe that Jesus has paid for your sins and then be a fearless person, courageous person and an overjoyed person. Let's speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the words of Jesus Christ, that he proclaims peace to us, and we need it badly. We need peace, particularly with you. But Lord, we also thank you that Jesus did not just say these words, but he showed that he had the power to say them and mean it, that it is indeed true that we can have peace. And he shows that he has that power by his resurrection from the dead. Lord, it is a historical fact that Jesus came back to life. And Lord, we thank you for the joy that follows when we know that our guilt is removed 
our sin is paid for and that we are no longer going to be punished for our sins when we die, but we are going to go to eternal life. Lord, we pray that you may help us to overcome the fears that we have in our minds about people around us, about different things that might kill us. Lord, we pray that we may overcome them by meditating upon our sin and the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. And Lord, may you fill our lives with such joy that people around us cannot understand why we are so joyful. And so we have opportunities to tell them, peace be with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.